Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast. From fake news and propaganda to covert funding, bribery and everyday espionage, Allegations of foreign interference in British politics and society is as old as the belief that Britain equally seeks to interfere in the internal affairs of its overseas competitors. In this podcast, The Critic's political editor, Graham Stewart, talks to Professor Jeremy Black, author of A History of Diplomacy, about the forms that foreign interference have taken and asks whether it is any worse now than in the past. Professor Jeremy Black, all major countries try to influence their friends and rivals. So where does diplomatic initiative end and interference begin? Um, At the present moment, as we know, there's a lot of discussion as to whether Russia and China are interfering in an inappropriate fashion in the internal affairs of other states. And the reason to discuss this is to show not not in any way to justify Russia or China, but to show that rather than thinking that interference is something that is unusual, it has in practical terms been very common uh, across uh, history. And indeed, exactly as you would anticipate, um, the more significant another state uh, appears as a potential ally or threat the more important it is to either secure its um, uh, its alliance or to weaken it. And that is then given an added dollop of intensity if there is an ideological challenge, as there was during the Reformation or the French Revolution or from the Russian Revolution on. But even if there's no ideological element, um, there was clear... Um, interest in winning support or alternatively in a different viewpoint subverting uh, other states so for example during the conflicts between um, England and France in the medieval period not not only the Hundred Years War but particularly the Hundred Years War um, the role of Scotland as a potential ally of France was important and both the English and the French sought um, alliances among Scottish elite figures accordingly. And, uh, I mean, one aspect which strikes me as really relevant is the difference between doing these things very openly. So, for example, the various treaties that were concluded between France and Scotland and uh, you know, the, the royal marriages and so on, and what we might describe as sort of subversive under-the-surface dealing uh, you know, payments, um, getting various individuals to uh, to do the, the the French government's bidding. Can you say a bit more about that? Yes, I'm not sure that that's a distinction that would have meant very much for large periods of the past, or indeed for some regimes today, in the sense that you're assuming that there is a clear contrast between a public politics and private politics. Well, if you look at the present day, I'm not sure that what you would mean by legitimate conduct vis-a-vis, shall we say, trying to influence the policy of North Korea or China or Belarus or Russia or Iran or many other states. So maybe we should turn this on its head and say that um, democratic societies are possibly less common 
societies, and these are not necessarily democratic, societies with a clear constitutional system and, as it were, clear systems of public probity in politics, including of political funding, are possibly even rarer. Um, so maybe what we're doing is chasing a utopian, still worthwhile goal, I and mean, there's no reason there's no reason to not chase it, but one that doesn't help us very much in understanding, in particular, the past, but also some societies today. Mm. In 1570, uh, Pope Pius V issued a, a, a famous, and perhaps notorious papal bull, Regnans in Excelsis, uh, which in essence um, told Catholics in England that they were not subjects of Queen Elizabeth and really encouraged them to treason. Um, can you elaborate a little bit about the, the methods the papacy and its um, political support elsewhere in Europe took in, uh, in influencing and, and subverting England during the reign of Queen Elizabeth? Well, the papacy had had a long-standing claim to greater legitimacy than civil rulers. So this is long precedes the Reformation. I mean, you can think, for example, of the role of popes, say Gregory VII, for example, or Innocent III, in um, deposing or limiting the authority of secular rulers. So this is not new, but obviously for the papacy, this is given an added um, sense of urgency by the view that reprobate um, rulers are also heretics, uh, although those views had been advanced prior to the Reformation on occasion. Um, so from that point of view, what you're dealing with is an illegitimate um, authority if, in the views of the papacy, and that therefore it becomes acceptable to suspend what would be um, the normal rules of political conduct in in order to pursue the um, the desirable final outcome. So yes, I mean, as you know, there was um, support for um, conspiracies in England. I mean, it ought to be said that this is part of a wider process in the late 16th century in which rulers would back opposition movements. I mean, Elizabeth I supported French Huguenot rebels in, um, in France from the 1560s. She supported the Lords of the Congregation in Scotland from in 1560, she supported uh, the Dutch rebels formally from 1585, and those were all Protestant, but she also, in the case of Spain, supported Don Antonio, who had a rival claim to the Portuguese throne to that of Philip II of Spain. So I wouldn't like it to be thought that the papacy is the only player here, um, what I would actually say is the notion of interfering in our terms in the internal affairs of other states presupposes a notion of state sovereignty, and which I'm not sure would have meant very much in that period. Mm -hmm. So, in essence, you're saying that you know, for many Catholics, they had a higher loyalty to uh, to their church, to their faith, um, and actually the, the notion of, of being subjects of, of the realm, particularly a Protestant realm, um, didn't actually have too much currency for them. 
I'm saying that's true of some Catholics, but obviously other Catholics that's not true of, and that remains the case right through the period when um, there were civil disabilities on Catholics. Some Catholics chose to um, intrigue, if you like to use that term, against the government. Others took a very different viewpoint. So I wouldn't want it to be thought that um, just because you were a Catholic, you were necessarily disloyal. I think that's a very, that's pushing it much too far. And equally, it ought to be said that um, Elizabeth I would certainly have not taken that view. Mm. Where, where did most of the effort of, of interference and even subversion, where, where did most of the effort go into? Was it in um, funding a propaganda war or in actual plotting a coup d'etat or an you know, act of, of assassination or terror? Oh, well, a whole variety of activities. I mean, partly is keeping the faith alive among um, Catholics, and that involves... Um, uh, you know, administering sacraments, uh, uh, sort of priests um, acting in a way that was illegal under the law of the land, but was absolutely crucial for the Catholic communion to continue. But then obviously, and that's a separate matter, though can be related, you've also got what you might call political um, um, intrigue, if you want to use that word, which varies in all sorts of ways. It can include just the production of uh, dissident literature, um, or it can include the actual attempt to take part in conspiracy to murder the sovereign. Um, and this becomes much more consequential um, after um, England and Spain go to war, because once they go to war, uh, then um, you know the English are... Um, at war with the leading uh, Catholic uh, lay power. And that remains the case till 1604. Mm. Well, we have a moment uh, uh, later in the 17th century with the reign of King Charles II, where uh, you know, Charles II is in the pay of France at, at one point. E is this a case of state capture? Well, I mean, that's an interesting view. I mean, Charles II, yet you're referring to the Secret Treaty of Dover in 1670, and you're also referring um, to the subsidies Charles II took in his last four years as monarch, so from 1681 to 1685. Um, that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that Charles, who is manoeuvring with some difficulty against domestic opponents, um, who, after all, um, some of them were the heirs in his eyes, and accurately in some cases, of those who had risen in rebellion against his father and you know, in, inflicted civil war on the country. So he's manoeuvring for advantage and taking money where he can get it from. I mean, it, it's one of the other ways of looking at it is that Charles uh, plays Louis XIV, his cousin, quite well. I mean, and you, you've always got this problem, and it's a problem that remains the case today. If you put money into a dissident movement in another country, are they playing you more than you're playing them? Mm. And, you know, uh, that's fairly common as an issue. It's common as an issue in intelligence matters. In other words, you're paying somebody who's uh, acting for you for money as opposed to uh, for ideology. Um, are they actually going to exaggerate uh, what they are reporting and what they say they, they're doing or can do in order to derive 
greater financial support or greater influence or you know all of these issues are are can be seen across time they're not new here and i'm i think you go you're it's very crude i'm not saying that you're being crude but it's a very crude view to say that simply because somebody is being paid in other words being given a subsidy therefore they are doing as you wish and if you think about it in the modern terms there are states that receive money um, for a whole host of reasons, including for and ways, including say uh, subsidised and cheap deliveries of armaments, or for that matter, uh, development aid, um, and you know they are that some of that support is given in order it is hoped to have particular outcomes, and it doesn't necessarily have those outcomes. Um, so just as, for example, you could give development aid to a country, and a lot of that money gets sort of you know swallowed in corruption um so you can easily give money to a state and you put you hope that it's military you know you're giving them weapons are then going to do what you want and what a surprise they don't i mean uh, the americans found that they'd invested very substantial sums of money in both turkey and pakistan and that when um they wanted to fight uh, um iraq and thinking of the 2003 war here um states like as i said egypt turkey pakistan all proved very unwilling despite the vast sums of money that had been paid to them so do you therefore take the view that these states were playing the americans as opposed to the americans playing them Yes, I, I wonder if the, the son, King Louis XIV, felt that he'd been a bit had by Charles II and he didn't get, uh, uh, he, he didn't get the, the bang for his buck that, that, that he'd been hoping for. Well, in the specific case of the Treaty of Dover, I mean, both Louis XIV and Charles II go to war with the Dutch in 1672. And in 1674, Charles II abandons that war. Um, by 1677, he's close to fighting Louis, and Louis, although he doesn't, and Louis doesn't uh, negotiate peace with the Dutch till 1678. So yes, I think uh, Louis the Fourteenth had reason to be cross, and that is why uh, I, you know, I've written about this on a number of uh, number of things in foreign policy. Um, but that's why um, during the exclusion crisis, in fact, Louis helps to subsidise Charles's opponents. Mm -hmm. mm. Well, I, that takes me on to the, the interesting point. Um, after 1688, of course, uh, the French policy is, is subsidising the uh, exiled Stuart family in the hope of them taking back the throne. Um, uh, what, what can be said really about that period in terms of not just obviously the uh, support that they gave to the uh, to James II and his descendants at the at the court of Saint Germain and, and elsewhere, but also the influence that France and also the papacy had in uh, supporting Jacobites, British Jacobites uh, within within the realm. Well, that again is a very interesting question. I mean the. We, we're apt, I mean, all of us do this, to go into a shorthand in which we refer to France as if it is a unit, uh, when obviously um, there are different views held by particular individuals, particular ministers, and indeed the same individuals can change view. And it's worth bearing in mind that exactly as you said, there are periods in which the French support uh, invasion attempts on Britain 
uh, let's say if you're looking in the early 18th century, 1708, 1744, 1745 to 6, 1759, but the two powers, Britain and France, are also allied uh, from 1716 to 1731. So I think one has to always allow for complexity. And one of the difficulties today is that when people look at the world around them, they always assume other states are monoliths with consistent policy. Uh, and they always, un they always take the view that their own state um, is much more complex. Um, and I, that's, you know, that's obviously misleading as an account of the present, but it's also misleading as an account of the past. And one of the interesting aspects as well, and you, you I thought, captured it very well at the outset, was in, is in trying to decide um, how that there are a variety of ways in which you seek to influence others. I mean, we could call some of it diplomacy or negotiation, uh, goodwill. Um, is that um, a trade? <laughs> it, that's not necessarily to be seen as a, a process in which one side manipulates the other, even if uh, the benefits might to an outsider or indeed to somebody who's part of the system seem stronger for one than the other. So the distinction between that and what one might see as more uh, ruthless intervention is less clear. But having said that, there clearly is ruthless intervention. And I mean, they, you know, for example, uh, the French fleet in the Channel in 1744, um, uh, you know, uh, it, 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 it is in part, I mean, it gets dispersed by a storm that year, but is in part designed in an invasion attempt to help the Jacobites. And as you say, if you're just looking at it from the British point of view, and I'm not trying to be Anglo-centric, we could do the same exercise if you want, and if we have the time for France or Spain or the United States. But if we're just looking at this from the British point of view, um, you can obviously see foreign powers taking a hostile role in wartime and trying to sponsor what we would call subversion. So you could see that in the case, for example, of French intervention in Ireland in the 1790s or the, uh, the German support uh, for the IRA uh, in World War II, German support uh, earlier for Irish nationalists in 1916. Uh, that we can see in wartime. Now, for many states, and I think this is fairly, this would not be a surprise to you, for many states, and I think the Soviet Union in its early decades very much took this view, war and peace were just part of the same process. Um, so that therefore, it was entirely appropriate in their eyes to take advantage of what they saw as dissidents or to sponsor dissidents um, in Britain. And this um, is a matter that for recent decades is difficult to evaluate because obviously some of the material is uh, secret in the case of both the British archives and their Soviet counterparts. And because um, so much is a question of rumor um, and it's very difficult to work out where to put the finger. But having said that, it would be surprising, to put it mildly, given earlier history and what we know about attempts at subversion in earlier periods, 
not to imagine that the same thing was going on in the period of the last 60, 70 years. And indeed, in the book I wrote, which I think we've discussed on Britain since 1945, I did argue that one of the things that is missing in the conventional treatments of British political history since 1945 is discussion of the role of foreign subversion in British politics. Now, you can take different views about what you mean about subversion. You can take it in part as influence peddling. Um, you can take it in part as something that's more pernicious than that. Like, you know, I, I mean, an obvious example of the latter uh, would be um, the role of foreign intelligence agencies in support of providing armaments to the IRA. Um, you could take the same view um, about the role of foreign, foreign powers in the support of radical trade union strike movements. And certainly uh, that argument was taken not just by uh, conservatives, but also by Labour governments, as in the late 40s. Um, so there, those issues have still not 100% clear. And as you will know, there have recently been controversies about the extent to which, for example, uh, the relationship between Michael Foote and Czech intelligence was an issue. And at the current moment, there's discussion about the role of the, um, the Russians in, um, in supporting Scottish nationalism, the Scottish National Party. These are all matters that will possibly only be able to be discussed in decades to come, not least because unless you can prove them at the moment, which you're not going to be able to do without access to secret archives, you run the risk of being done for, depending upon the form you're taking, libel or slander. But that does not mean that they are not important elements. And the fact that people often feel that they can't discuss them or meet does not mean that they are not consequential. And it's made more complex, isn't it, by uh, fellow travellers and uh, those let's say, taking the case of communism, those on the left who felt it important to keep links open with uh, Eastern European organisations and, and share information with them. It, it's possible in a kind of useful idiot way that, that um, some of these uh, British left-wing intellectuals you know, felt they were just being helpful and having a, a general conversation, but that um, the Eastern European and Russian spies wrote it up as if, you know, they were really, really important contacts. Um, is that, do you think, a plausible d defence? Well, there's a whole host of reasons why people do things. I mean, some people do them just for money, uh, but some people uh, do them for, in part or whole, for ideological factors. You shouldn't think this is just the far left, you know. Um, you can see the same process uh, in some respects, the far left is often a mirror of the far right, and you could see uh, some of the links um, with, for example, the South African intelligence service. But you also ought to bear in mind there is this illusion that we have in Britain that, as it were, the centre is the monopoly of virtue, and the, those who are not in the centre have the monopoly of vice. I mean, bear in mind that I'm not criticising anybody. I'm just making an observation, which a historian will probably make in 100 years' time, maybe much sooner than that. You can see exactly the same processes if you are looking about at relations between, shall we say, mainstream British politics and 
you know, representatives of states that we would regard as friendly, let us say Germany or France or, you know, the United States. There are politicians whom one would immediately, if one was in those embassies, think of in order to contact if one wanted to have a sympathetic view advanced. Now, this doesn't mean these people are traitors or bad people. It simply means that we have to be very careful as to how we are thinking about uh, about matters. Now, is it the case that, you know, you mentioned um, the, um, the left. I mean, if you were a, you know, let's say a sort of fairly useless Labour MP in the late 50s, which was a period when they were not in a position to have much of a prospect of power. And at that period, you know, you're sitting being drunk with a Czech intelligence agent and you're moaning and moping and saying, well, Gateskill's awful, but when Harold takes over or if you help Harold take over, we'll be more sympathetic to you. Is that, um, you know, treason? No, it's not treason. Is it unhelpful? Well, yes, I suppose it is unhelpful because it's not very helpful if members of parliament feel more comfortable speaking to the agents of foreign powers than they do to their own constituents. Um, so, But where you put it, is it important? Well, that's an interesting one. And here we then go to the next way round. I mean, if you were looking to weaken a state, and we're talking about Britain at the moment, but we could be talking about other states, Really, what has most weakened Britain? What, you know, I mean, in the terms of the uh, investment in the IRA, coming close to blowing up Mrs. Thatcher and after that John Major or any one of another uh, other conspiracies that were foiled, actually was a pretty good investment. Now, here you're talking about clear illegality, but then you've got matters that might not be illegal so clearly. Uh, shall we say, uh, putting money into the National Union of Miners uh, during the miners' strike, which was a matter that was widely discussed. The Sunday Times, I seem to remember, revealed that uh, money had been conveyed by foreign powers, most of us which would regard as hostile. To my mind, that is not uh, acceptable. But other people, presumably those who supported the National Union of Miners, would have said this was perfectly acceptable. And that then rolls forward into the present day. If you want to weaken, if, if you're Russia and you want to weaken British defences at the present moment, then supporting the Scottish nationalists might well be the best way forward because it might well lead to the end of the, of the British nuclear submarine base at Faslane. Um, if, on the other hand, um, you are a, um, a state that we regard as, as it were, friendly, they might be taking exactly the same view on seeking to influence British policy in some way or other. And is that necessarily to be regarded as different in form or just different in tone? Now, in my mind, it tends to be different in, in uh, the fact that it's similar form doesn't necessarily mean it a bad thing if it's a country with which we have friendly relations. Well, there was, uh, thinking of the 1980s, you know, there was the supposed Libyan uh, connection and, and also Eastern European and Russian funds that 
um, found its way into the peace movement and all the suggestions that, that certain aspects of CND might have received funding, however indirectly, from um, communist roots. Yes, I think all of this is correct, Graham. So that's about roughly we're talking about 35 years ago. So the question that is therefore interesting is what is going on at the moment? That is what is interesting. In other words, it's not really credible to assume that there is not some support from foreign powers that are hostile to Britain to certain movements within Britain that are detrimental to whatever you might see as um, uh, opposition to their interests. Um, now, that's obviously, you know, you mention that and immediately people start screaming paranoia, you know, conspiracy theory. And what part of the problem is there are people out there who are paranoid. There are people out there who go in for conspiracy theories and the theories are foolish and paranoia is totally unhelpful. Absolutely the case. It is also the case that it would be surprising if there is a period of time in which states do not seek to, as it were, play a role in the internal affairs. Um, and that would just be surprising. I mean, if it's not happening, great, I'd be delighted. But it would be surprising. Um, and that, you know, that's something worth thinking about. And at the same goes for other countries. And it's, you know, it's um, an aspect of um, uh, an aspect of world affairs, which we're happy to talk about when we're talking about in terms of soft power, we're all happy to say, and there's nothing wrong with this, I'm not criticizing anybody here, we're all happy to say that soft power is a good idea, trying to influence other, um, other populace, other domestic opinion is a good thing. Well, yes, um, but one needs to be aware that that's not the, the only sole form, and also that one state's soft power is not seen always uh, in the same light by others. Well, I, this is surely a, a point Vladimir Putin would make, uh, wouldn't he, when he would say that you know, Western countries, including the United Kingdom, uh, you know, in funding so-called or actual civil society groups in Russia, um, you know, the British position would be that they're encouraging a more pluralistic society. Putin's argument would be you're, you're interfering in the internal affairs of Russia. Yes. And I mean, you know, I mean, I obviously am not a sympathizer of President Putin and I don't find his policies attractive. But, you know, he's he's consistent in his views. And indeed, there are a number of states in the world that would take that position. Uh, a, a clear case of um, foreign funding and intervention in a uh, British referendum is the uh, European referendum, not the referendum of 2016, but the referendum of 1975. Um, American money, not a million miles away from the CIA, uh, founded, uh, funded the European movement, uh, a key force in supporting Britain's membership of the European community. It's an interesting example, isn't it, of a, of a friendly power um, exerting what it saw as a goal of American foreign policy, the, the unity of Western Europe uh, in, in a Cold War framework, uh, and, and interfering in that way very directly. Uh, well, I mean, you might direct... say, and again, you might say, Graham, and again, I'm not trying to take sides, I'm just simply observing you might say in a post-war Cold War context, the same thing happened in 2016 when the President of the United States 
gave us his view on what we should do. But the point is that from the perspective of the United States, this would not be interfering. But equally, from the British perspective of whether people supported or didn't support Brexit, they're not always terribly happy. And in fact, I mean, I remarked at the time that I thought President Obama was very unwise if that was what he really wanted, because most people don't like do, be doing what they're told. Um, interestingly enough, and, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to puff my books. You can jolly well get them in a library, I would hope. But in my book, Fighting for America, which was on the struggle for mastery in North America from 1519 to 1871. I have a couple of chapters on the American Civil War, and including the papers of Lord, did a lot of research on the papers of Lord Lyons, who was the British ambassador during the Civil War, so that's 1861 to 65. And Lord Lyons is actively talking to um, the opposition, the Democrats, um, in a way that, um, as it were, um, could be regarded as subverting the policy of the American government, the, which was a Republican government of Abraham Lincoln. Looked at differently, uh, British policy was uh, to try and have a peaceful solution to the Civil War, and that meant um, to try and see that Lincoln failed, uh, either in or desire the 62 midterms or the 64 presidential election, because what Britain wanted was a negotiated end to the war. Um, now, you know, I think we these days would not be very comfortable with the thought that that was British policy, but just as you know, a different different context, obviously, but just as the United States during the um, European Union referenda. Uh, was advancing what it thought was both American interests, but its view also of British interests. So similarly, the British had that view. Now, again, you go back to Mr. Putin. Mr. Putin is advancing not just what you know you and I would regard as a rather noxious view of his own country's interests, but he's also advancing a view as what he regards as the appropriate way for all states to operate, and essentially an autonomous fashion without having to be concerned with what he sees as a interfering set of notions of uh, of sort of civic society, international civic society. So, you know, I think one has to be aware that it gets very hard. And in essence, what one has to do in each of these cases is think about context, I mean, which is, after all, we're both historians. That's what historians try and do, is instead of propounding some, some universal law, which is what you, in effect, asked me to do at the outcome, which was a universal law of definition and therefore presumably of acceptability, what I think most of most historians would be more comfortable doing, particularly those who are international relations specialists, is to say, well, you have to look and understand the particular context as to what's going on, and then you can have a viewpoint uh, when you see what, in fact, these states are doing and why they are doing it. Well, uh, Professor Jeremy Black, author of The History of Diplomacy, we must leave it there. But as ever, thank you very much for taking us through the complicated and uh, difficult world of interference in uh, British and uh, other foreign affairs. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website 
www.thecritic.co.uk.